Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great movies, so many great conversations. But it's a lot of work. Producing this show week after week does require a lot behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We had some great films in Season 8 that started their lives as books or plays, and you can find all of them on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can find links to purchase all the source material behind the adapted films we covered from season one up through our current season. For part of season eight, we had a series celebrating the 50th anniversary of films from 1968. We talked about 2001 and 2010 for our Odyssey series, both adapted from Arthur C. Clarke's novels. Man, the second one was so much better than the first, right? Don't you even get me started. <sighs> Need I bring up Under the Cherry Moon again? Yes, also so much better. <laughs> wait, wait, no, that's not what I... <sighs> Planet of the Apes kicked off its series based on the novel by Pierre Boulet. We covered Danger Diabolic and The Detective, adapted from novels for our 1968 crime films. Wait, wasn't that The Detective the prequel to Die Hard? They were both written by Roderick Thorpe, and yes, it's the same character in the books. I can't believe they even asked Sinatra if he'd be in Die Hard. That would have been yeah. weird. <laughs> Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was part of our Leone Once Upon a Time trilogy, adapted from Harry Gray's novel. And we looked at 1968 Best Picture nominees The Lion in Winter, Rachel Rachel, Romeo and Juliet, and Oliver! We also had an Ingrid Bergman series with adaptations like Spellbound, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Murder on the Orient Express, and Gaslight. We haven't talked about Gaslight. Stop gaslighting me! <laughs> Dive deeper into these books and more adapted films at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations that we've covered on all the Next Real family of podcasts and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight in the show, we join the search for Miss Alquist's jewels in George Cukor's 1944 marriage aid, Gaslight. It was written two days before she was murdered. Where did you find that? In this score, she must have left it here. It's written by somebody called Sergius Bauer. Give it to me. He said I wasn't any liquor. He said I was going out of my mind. You're not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. But why? Why? <laughs> oh, that's oh. wonderful. And oh. you thought I was being cruel to you. <laughs> Keeping no, people away not from cruel. <laughs> making you a prisoner. Oh, you're the kindest man in the world. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You make it sound so perky. 
<laughs> you need to put like <laughs> you need to put you know the uh, you know remember the the music in that uh, trailer Shining, uh, which was the spoof version of of <laughs> of The Shining that made it look like a you know like kind like of a, a romantic comedy or something or just a kind of a happy family comedy yeah. sort of thing. <laughs> yes, right. And the, Meet yeah, Jack. Yeah, yes, totally. I totally remember that, that music. That's what I feel like when I watch the first thirty minutes of this movie. Is just how charming it is. That's because you've been gaslit. If they just gaslighted, lightning, gas lightning. That's what we need, Andy. Uh, is your marriage in the doldrums? You need some <laughs> gas lightning. <laughs> uh, we are talking about uh, the 1944 uh, George Cukor film Gaslight. Uh, it is part of our lovely Ingrid Bergman series. Uh, Ingrid uh, is the um, is the lovely uh, bride in this fantastic film. Uh, now, this is on the immediate heels of the 1940 version of the same film, which is on the almost immediate heels of the play from 1938. So from 1938 to 1944, it was big for Gaslight, for the whole concept, for everything. It was big. I feel uh, like society was gaslighted. Yes. Lit, lit, gaslit. <laughs> yeah, no, we're going to be messing that up all never... <laughs> night. Yeah. So what did you think? Now, I, and we should say, to set the stage, both you and I somehow managed to fit in both versions of Gaslight for this week's show. So we're not, while we are not going to be doing a show on the 1940 version, at least we have that context. Yes? Yes. And we should also say both of us had seen the 1944 version before. Like yes. back in our pasts before yes. and not the 1940 version. That is correct. And yes. and relieved that it is the 1940 version is actually streaming on Amazon Prime. And so it was an easy pickup. And and I would say worth seeing if you haven't and you're into this thing. It was worth seeing. It was 100 percent worth seeing. I would say it is uh, just an incredible version of this story and well worth watching incredible performances um i didn't know that the film existed and after reading the history which we certainly are going to be talking about um i instantly was in love i, I just think that this is an amazing pairing of of translations of this story that um, both need to be seen so let's let's talk about why first of all why we're doing this film would you like to update us on your opinions of Ingrid Bergman. Well, I think uh, we had been looking for a uh, an actor or actress to talk about, and Ingrid Bergman, I think, is one of those actresses that uh, rose to the top when we were trying to decide um, because she has such a wonderful career. She's got an interesting life. A lot of things had gone on as far as you know, in favor, out of favor, all of that sort of stuff. Um, being kind of a, a foreigner working in uh, many countries. Uh, she's just got a great career and a lot of great films. And uh, when we settled on that idea, I just think it it, it uh, worked really well for both of us to do a longer series looking at a couple, uh, you know, eight of her films just to really kind of explore her career and look at it and just see what she does because she delivers some really, really strong performances. I mean, this is the third of our series after Casablanca and For Whom the Bell Tolls. And each time I feel like we have seen an incredibly different character. And I think that speaks to um, Ingrid Bergman as an actress and what she's doing and delivering with her performances. I think so, too. And in this film in particular, watching the way she I, I mean, it's not just watching how she changed over the course of of a series of movies, Casablanca, for whom the bell tolls now gaslight. But the way she transforms within this character is uh, it, it's sort of breathtaking for me to to watch her at work here and uh it is it, it's going from this sort of sense of just wonderful innocence and trauma uh that now she becomes you know this such a victim uh, over the course of our you know hour and 40 some odd minutes together it's it is uh, exceptional work it is really beautiful yeah, it really is. I, I will say I'm a little disappointed that uh, she is not one of the EGOTs out there in the world. She has her Emmys. She has her Tony. She has three Academy Awards. But alas, the Grammy eluded her. And this film, she sings opera. She sings some songs in this film. This could have been her chance. And you think I this feel would like, have been it? <laughs> I feel like they let us down. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> 
now, I, I wanted to open just a little bit with some some of the context of the 1940 film and how these how the films differ. What was it that MGM was trying to get away with here uh, over the original, uh, you know, British version of the film? I know we usually start or talk about kind of that history and backstory piece later, but it, it's kind of interesting setup. Yeah, it really is. This, I mean, as you mentioned, this, these both were based on this play, Angel Street, that was on Broadway, uh, starting in 1938, and it was a a pretty successful show. I mean, it had run. I can't remember how many, you know, 1,200 performances, something yeah. like that. Quite a quite a long run. And um, uh, what happened is it was adapted, uh, directed by Thorold Dickinson with Anton Walbrook and Diana Winyard as the two leads. And uh, it was a British version of the story. Um, incredibly powerful performances. But what happened is um, it it had a release in the UK as Gaslight. And when it was released in the US, they released it as Angel Street. And MGM really wanted to release, <laughs> make their version of this film. So what they did is they basically talked to uh, I can't remember what the company was that was uh, doing it at the time. British National, I think, um, did the 1940 version. And they basically got the rights to it, MGM did. And they said, we are we want to make this, but in order to um, to do it, we they included a clause that said all prints of the first film had to be destroyed because they didn't want uh, any other uh, anyone confusing the films. They didn't want anybody thinking uh, or, you know, kind of watching this other film and thinking less of theirs, all this nonsense. And so MGM uh, put that in the contract and British National did it. Luckily, Thorold Dickinson, who was really upset that this is what was happening, he snuck into the vaults and snuck his uh, his negative out, struck a print of it, and then snuck back in and put the negative back. And he held that for like uh, this. That was in the forties until I think the eighties. So like forty yeah. some years, he held it in hiding, not letting anybody know that he had a print. And everybody thought that the original nineteen forty film had been destroyed and was gone, and uh, nobody really kind of knew about it. Everybody thought that this was the version of the film. I mean, it's just horrifying that this is what they did. I just, it, it's shocking that that's how uh, that unfolded. It is shocking. And it's even more shocking that it's this movie that, <laughs> <laughs> right? right? MGM right. does the Society equivalent. gaslighted it. Right? The equivalent of putting the film in the purse and then hiding it in the drawer. Like <laughs> what film? this, the, exactly. What film? Are you crazy? It hurts my feelings that you think that there was any other film but this one. MGM, what? <sighs> uh, and <sighs> you know the 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 fact that he Ocean's Eleven this thing and was able to sneak it out, strike a print, and put it back before anybody <laughs> right. noticed is is maybe the movie I want to watch. Uh, right. a, a, about this whole thing that is a, an incredible story and it's incredible that we that that we now have both of them here and they're both great they both are great and i'm you know i'm a little disappointed that the prints that we have over here in the u.s are not as apparently gorgeous as they are over in the uk where they have a gorgeous print that they've struck some gorgeous blu-rays from so i would love to have a copy of that because i mean it's already a, the 1940 version is a gorgeous film too um i would love to see a pristine version of it so yeah, uh, yeah. i'd love to have both of them because they're just it's two great versions of this story so then let's talk a little bit about our 1940 versus 44 reflections then. How, uh, you know, leading us to Ingrid and her relationship, uh, or I should say the relationship between uh, uh, Paula and Gregory. Um, what do you think about what this film does uh, differently than the original? Right. Yeah. I, I mean, Right out of the gate, I mean, you know, we're getting different names. Instead of Paul and Bella, we're getting Paula and Gregory. So mm -hmm. they, they're they already starting with that. Um, but aside from that, I mean, uh, I, it sounded like a lot of it was pretty close in line to the the way that the play unfolded. Um, but they, what I think that they did actually really smartly here is that they fleshed the story out in the, in the, 
the previous version, it did feel um, a little bit like they were adhering pretty closely to the stage version. And so it felt, I don't want to say stagey in a way that sounds bad, but it felt like of the stage, right? It just Mm -hmm. felt like there was a little more exposition. Whereas here, we get, instead of just having the exposition, we get some of the backstory. It's actually fleshed out. We get to see um, these different, like we see their relationship developing, which was really nice. We see her finding the letter and see the game's beginning. Um, I, I love at the beginning, we see her as this young girl coming out. And we, I, I thought it was really smart that they actually connect her very directly to this victim. She's, it was her aunt and she's being raised by her. And we get to, and she was the one who kind of discovered the body. I mean, there's some really interesting elements added all through it. And uh, it, I don't know, for me, I think it really enhanced the story in a way that just gave me a, a uh, just additional information for the story that, that worked really nicely. There were some elements like the original had very direct infidelity. Uh, Gregory has an affair. He, well, he goes out with uh, the with Nancy, their parlor maid, and uh, goes out to kind of the, I guess the eighteen hundreds version of the club. So they can kind of go out and watch the <laughs> watch the uh, the ladies dancing and all that. Um, but he, um, and, and you know, it it is very much more of a direct kind of take on the infidelity. I don't know if that was left out of the U.S. version because of the censors at the time or if they were just trying to kind of tone it down, but it is something that I missed. I thought that was a really nice development that we had in that one. Um, but it also, I feel like the relationship changed a little between the two. I, I ended up feeling like Gregory in the 1940 version was, uh, you know, a little more, I mean, sorry, Paul in the first one uh, was a little more hostile. He had, it, it, you know, his sense of the way that he was dealing with the relationship seemed a little more hostile with Bella, whereas mm-hmm. Gregory in the 1944 version seemed to really be struggling and had a little more kind-hearted struggle that he was doing with Paula. So I, I I didn't read it that way. I mean, the, the, you know, the result is, is the same, but for me, the relationship between, um, uh, in 1940 between Paul and Bella was, it ramped up from like normal relationship to aggressively gaslighting relationships so quickly and so sort of ragefully. I got more of a sense that Paul was a criminal early in the earlier in the movie. Like it was just paced in such a way that this was a crime story so quickly. Um, Yeah. And and so in in that regard, I really appreciated what they did with 1944. It slows down. It slows down to give us more of a sense of character, of purpose, of place. You don't miss that sense of purpose. I think it's easy to miss the sense of purpose in the 1940 version because it just races through into the actual tactics of, you know, psychological terror. And in, in the 1944 version, you get a chance to kind of meet these people and to get a sense of relationship. And it's the it's it's only after we see how it all plays out, if you can kind of imagine yourself having never seen the film. It's only after you you find out what his gambit was that you start to to it starts to sort of reveal that these little pieces when he is with her and talking about how, oh, I would just love to be on a, you know, this little fantasy square in London. Wouldn't it be great if if I if I could just grow up and give you a home on this little square? And, and you know, little do we know that he's describing her childhood and the home of her youth that she happens to own and that he's already manipulating her even that early in their relationship. But you don't really know that until later because it ramps up so slowly. And I think that that makes for a better experience for me in 1944. Yeah. And it also, I think they play with the mystery a lot more in the 44 version where you have in the 40 version, you see Paul uh, doing stuff more uh, maliciously or, Mm -hmm. you know, purposefully plotting his gaslighting where you see him you know, taking something out of her bag or, or, you know, pretending to put something, whatever it is, however he played it, you kind of see all that play out. Whereas in the 44 version, like you see, you see Gregory put something in her bag. And then later when she's looking, it's not there. And mm-hmm. we never see him pull it out. 
and yet it's lost. And and so you actually they I thought they did an interesting job of building like is there something where you know missing with her as far as kind of this touch of insanity? Like I thought it was actually a pretty interesting way to play that in this one. Oh, totally. That the audience is in on the gaslight, right? The audience is in on the 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 fact that there is confusion and we are confused just as she is confused. And that's that makes for a, a much better sort of emotional connection to the to the story than you know than the original. I think it's a, a dr- pretty dramatic improvement for me. Um, yeah. But, you know, we should probably explain, maybe for those who haven't seen it or haven't seen it in a long time, what what the gaslighting part is. We haven't actually talked about that yet. Right. Yeah. Gaslighting. I mean, back in the 1800s, when this takes place, it is basically you had these I don't know what their job title was, the gasoliers or something like that, Mm -hmm. who would go around and in the evenings they would light the gas lamps on the street. They turn them on and light them and everything. And in addition, all the houses had the manual uh, lanterns on the walls that you would turn on the gas and then you would light it. And that's how you would have light in your house. It is very much a specific thing that you would do to have this gas um, light your house. However, when you would have multiple lights, if you had a few lights on and then somebody else in a different part of the house turned on the gas to light it, it would dim the lights in your room. And what's happening in her particular house here is the lights are going down, but nobody else is in the house. And so it's this whole idea of her kind of losing her mind. And so what gaslighting has become from this story, from the play and these films, an actual psychological term, gaslighting, which does describe this psychological abuse where you have an abuser who manipulates the the victim into kind of doubting their own sanity um, through these different techniques of making them feel like they're crazy and no there's nothing I, I didn't you you put it in your purse where is it like these sorts of things that um, that all of a sudden make them question how sane they are yeah it's the it's the equivalent the psychological equivalent of flushing a toilet while somebody's in the shower right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and and certainly the gas equivalent of flushing the toilet with something. Yes. Hey, did you see those lights go down? Those lights didn't go down. I don't know what you're talking about. And that is what is is the actual sort of giveaway in the story. And it's what allows us in 1944 or in 1940, I should say, we get this uh, this glimpse of what he's doing up in the attic, right? Um, and we see him go up outside. He's up crossing the roof and he goes into a window up in this boarded up attic. The only way to get in there is through this rooftop window and he's knocking around up there. And then we, we cut down to where she is, to where Bella is. And we hear the footsteps and we see the gas lights dim. And she's like, does nobody else hear this? Does nobody else see that the lights are going dark and she's (laughs) truly losing it. But we are in on that already as an audience, right? We're in on that. And in the 1944 version, this is a haunting because we're with her when she sees the gaslights dim. We're with her when she hears the footsteps, but we never see him go upstairs. We never see him climb in that window until later uh, at, at the at a later reveal. And so it feels to us much more intense. I my experience of it. it was it's much more of an intense emotional reaction because we're experiencing it with the person who is it, who it's being inflicted upon. Yes. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. So the one other character we need to bring up which is an important character that is the character you already mentioned that the parlor maid Nancy. Uh in Oh, yes. This film the 1944 film it is delightfully played by and she's 18 I think Angela Lansbury. Uh Yes. Angela. Yeah. Yep. What's crazy is she was actually 17 when she started. This uh, so it's it's an interesting story. Let me just go back a little bit because I, I love this story. So so her uh, mother was an actress, Moyna Moyna McGill, and um, and somehow I think Moyna knew John Van Druten, who was one of the screenwriters on the project. John uh, had suggested to QCOR to screen test some of some of Moyna's daughters for a role, and uh, um, 
Moina, as I said, she was an English actress. She was uh, a refugee here in the States during World War II. And Lansbury, Angela Lansbury, was the first of her daughters to audition. She had never acted ever. Um, before the screen test for this film. But Cukor just was like amazed by this talent that she had and her professionalism and how great she was and instantly wanted to cast her. What's funny is Angela was actually working at a Bullock's apartment department store in L.A. And so she went and told her boss, I'm leaving. And her boss offered to match the pay at her new job. She hadn't said what it was. <laughs> he thought that it was something in the range of what she was earning there, something around $27 a week. And she told him she's earning $500 a week. <laughs> and so he, needless to say, uh, wasn't able to match her pay. And off she went. Uh, and then what's funny is because she was 17, there is a scene where she has to light a cigarette. And uh, when she's contradicting what uh, what Paula is, Paula's wishes are. Um, and what's funny is that Lansbury, uh, you know, she was a minor. There was, uh, I guess at the time, the way they did it is, you know, there was a social worker who monitored you if you were underage. And so the social worker was monitoring her and refused to allow the production to have Lansbury smoke while she was still a minor. So the production went on past her 18th birthday. And so uh, on set, when she turned 18, uh, uh, Ingrid Bergman and the whole crew had a big birthday party for her, and they had the cigarette ready. And so as soon as they finished the party, the, she lit the cigarette, and they went and shot the cigarette scene. I love it. I love it. Oh, Angela. Oh, so good. Well, yeah. and she's, and you know, true to form, she's wonderful in this part. As She's such a capable young actress, and uh, she is... Uh, she's she's just great. And, you, you know, the way she interacts, particularly the way she allows, um, you know, Charles Boyer's just early insidious psychopathy uh, kind of, and, and sociopathy uh, emerge even as early as the interview that he does with her to give her the job is uh, it, it's just wonderful to watch as, as she's sort of probably doing the same thing that she was doing on on set. Angela Lansbury, she's doing is Nancy here, just sort of preening and and uh, um, she just she pulls it off so well. I do have to say, though, a point you made earlier. The overt affair is something that I liked in 1940, and the fact that they masked any of that overt kind of nature of the, of, of the affair in 1944, I kind of missed it. Oh, that's what I said. Yeah, I, I really liked that in the 1940 version. I thought it made yeah. for a really strong uh, and interesting twist in the relationship here. I, yeah. I, I missed that in the 44 version. Truly. And I don't know, again, it was it you know, the, the kind of the censorship at the time? I don't know why they dropped it, but I did miss it. The fact that the censorship would have come out in a four-year space is <laughs> it's a little bit well, surprising. British, but the British, British versus you, 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 yeah, yeah, UK versus US. You production. could get away with anything in Britain in 1940. <laughs> Believe me, <laughs> right. anything you want. Yeah. We've talked a little bit about uh, Bergman and how wonderful she is. She was pretty reticent initially to actually take this part because she always considered herself to be a very strong, independent woman, and she was really not sure that she would be able to convincingly play a character who was so kind of nervous and broken down. And she ended up uh, becoming very attached to this part um, because she ended up feeling like it was one of her greatest challenges as an actress to be able to play this weak character. And I think that's a really interesting kind of testament to to her work and everything. Um, and and just an interesting side note, as far as her and her relationship with Charles Boyer, who I think is wonderful, and we should talk about him for a minute, uh, for sure, but they had never met, and they had never um, worked together before, and the very first thing that they had to shoot was the scene outside of the train station where he meets her, 
and uh, they have to kind of have a love scene. And they, they literally just met before the scene was filmed. And Bergman was just terrified, and Boyer was uncomfortable. And it, it made for a very difficult situation. And that created a thing with Bergman. For the rest of her career, she refused to do any love scenes until she had actually met the person ahead of time and had a chance to get to know them a little bit so that she felt less flustered and embarrassed while shooting the scene. Oh, that's kind of sweet. <laughs> well and and you know i think she is part of her and building that career of being sort of the the strong um you know female character i think she that that is what makes this role that is what uh, that that's what completely sells it like and and it's it is the thing that i really struggle with in the the original uh that you know just as Paul's character ramps up the aggressive sort of criminality in their relationship too quickly. Uh, Diana, when uh, when you're, she becomes the withering uh, victim so quickly that you never get a sense to, a sense that there's any transformation going on here. She's just broken, and here you actually get to to see Ingrid Bergman lead this char- character to break, and that is so rewarding. We have moments in this one where I feel like she's finding her strength. And I think that is what really helps me. Mm-hmm. You know, we get a moment where early on, as the wonderful Dame May Witty is talking to Joseph Cotton outside the house, and she's like, she never comes outside. And then you see her come out. Yeah. And they're talking about it. And then she's trying to make a decision to go somewhere. And then she gets nervous and, and she ends up going back inside because she just can't do it. And then later we get, uh, she's talking, uh, she comes out dressed up and she tells her husband, I'm going to this party. And he tries to convince her otherwise. And she, I mean, really kind of puts her foot down and says, I'm going to go. And and he's like, I didn't realize it was so important. And he goes, he still gaslights her once there. But I like that we had moments of agency for her where she was still kind of trying to prove to herself that I'm not crazy. And I think that that really strengthened the character uh, for me as I watched the film and the way that she was portrayed this time. I absolutely agree. I would just add early, early in the film when she's on the train and she's talking to um, she's talking to what's her name again when they first meet on the train. Dame Witty, yeah. Yes, Dame May Witty. And she's having this conversation. She says, well, wait, you're going where alone? She says, oh, well, I hardly think anything's going to happen to me. She is like this young, strong, you know, just sort of She's invincible, right? And that is that's who we get in the beginning. That's Ingrid Bergman in the beginning of the film. And that's the journey that we that's where we start on this journey on a train, watching her break down the first person she sees when she gets off the train. It's him. Uh, You know, you don't hate me, do you? Uh, It's just it's just perfect. It's diabolical. It's perfect. And it gets to then we we get to the, the last point of the gaslighting that that gives me enormous anxiety. And that is the whole aspect of public shaming. And that is the thing that I think both 1940 and 1944 do in their own way, just right. This is at the concert. Does this make you quiver in anxiety like it does to me? Oh, it's just horrifying. This this is a perfect example of the psychological horror because the way he's breaking her down and destroying her really comes to this head at this concert. And watching her, the way that she's thinking through things and trying to piece it together and then just devastated by the fact that you know, she might be losing her mind. She might have misplaced this and not realized it. And just how awful he is and just the psychological games that people like play and how uh, an abuser like him takes advantage of somebody who has this weakness. And it's just, it's horrifying. And it's psychologically, I mean, it breaks me while I watch it because it's just, it, it is horrifying. Yeah. The, the, the party, Mrs. Dalroy's party that, uh, where where we see her come to terms with the fact that she she is now officially questioning. She's always been just sort of on the edge. Like she she knows that he is it, that that something is awry with you know she's misplacing things. She's suddenly forgetful and it's just not right. But when she's actually sitting in the party and they're you know they're in the middle of this concert, this uh, piano concert, and her and she's just her cup runneth over. You know she just can't she can't stand it that 
that she is being questioned in this public case. And he is able to make her feel shame, not only for questioning her own sanity, for having taken the watch, misplaced the watch, that she's actually, uh, he's making her feel shame for making a scene about it in public, which is the the, the layer upon layer of, of you know, uh, torture that, that he is inflicting. It is such an incredible example of what this film does right. Oh, really true. So true. And I think, I mean, not to jump too far, but I mean, really just to go right to the, the final confrontation between the two. Mm -hmm. uh, I I mean, it's that to me is really the reason that's the, the entire film ends up working because when he is finally caught and Joseph Cotton has him and, and she has that moment and it happens beautifully in both films. But in this one, I just, I love her speech when she's like, I want to talk to my husband and she goes in and that whole thing where she's, she is a hundred percent pointing out to him the destruction that he's done to her. You know, when he's like, get that knife, cut me free. And he's like, and she's like, are you suggesting this is a knife I hold in my hand? <sighs> and just kind of playing with him in that way where it's like, oh, there's so much hate and just her entire speech. You know, if I were not mad, I could have helped you. And just the way that she keeps going and building to this thing. And, you know, finally this climax of, you know, without a shred of pity, without a shred of regret, watching you go with glory in my heart. It's like, wow. Uh, Ingrid Bergman is like, she's so good. And it's like, I mean, it's it's horrible what she's gone through, and it's you know, in if you if you had the sequel to this, it would be her going through kind of the PTSD reflection of trying to deal with all the psychological damage he had done to her. Yeah. But at least in this film, we do get a nice sense of resolve that she has kind of found her way through it, and as broken as she is, she is now free. And it's, I mean, it's really powerful, very touching. That speech is great. In fact, Andy, it's so great. Let's we should listen to it right now. Look into my eyes. If I ever meant anything to you, and I believe I did, then help me, Bola. Give me another chance. Look, in the drawer of that cupboard over there, there is a knife. Get it and cut me free. Be quick, Bola. Get me the knife, cut me free. Will you get it, Bola? Will you get it for me? Yes, I'll get it. I'll get it for you. Hurry, Bora. There's no knife here. Yes, I put it there. Look, but I don't I... see any knife. I put it there tonight. No, it isn't here. You must have dreamed you put it there. Are you suggesting that this is a knife I hold in my hand? Have you gone mad, my husband? Or is it I who am mad? Yes, of course, that's it. I am mad. I'm always losing things and hiding things, and I can never find them. I don't know where I put them. That was a knife, wasn't it? And I have lost it. Oh, I must look for it, mustn't I? If I don't find it, you'll put me in the madhouse. Where could it be now? Perhaps it's behind this picture. Yes, it must be here. No. No, where shall I look now? Perhaps I put it over here. Yes, I must have done that. My brooch. The brooch I lost at the tower. I found it at last, you see, but it doesn't help you, does it? And I'm trying to help you, aren't I? Trying to help you to escape. How can a mad woman help her husband to escape? But you're not mad. Yes, I am mad, as my mother was mad. No, Paula. That wasn't true. Help me. If I were not mad, I could have helped you. Whatever you had done, I could have pitied and protected you. But because I am mad, I hate you. Because I am mad, I have betrayed you, and because I am mad, I'm rejoicing in my heart without a shred of pity, without a shred of regret, watching you go with glory in my heart. Mr. Cameron, come! Come, Mr. Cameron, take this man away! Take this man away! Uh, okay, there, uh, there is one character that we have that you only just mentioned, and we have not talked about both in terms of his performance and his role in the story, and that is Joseph Cotton, uh, plays the role of Brian Cameron. Uh, let's, what's, what is the function of Mr. Cameron in the film? 
he is very much kind of the detective who knew about the case, about the the murder that had happened um, ages before when Miss Alquist was killed and her place was raided. This was uh, this was Paula's. Uh, what was she? Her aunt, right? Yes. And uh, and he he had known about this case uh, and uh, working at Scotland Yard. It's something that he is aware of. Earlier in the film, Gregory and Paula go to the Tower of London to look at some jewels and and look around. This is where the whole brooch gets lost in the in her handbag. This is where Brian, who works for uh, Scotland Yard, he's there with his kids poking around, and he sees Gregory and Paula walking by, and he's kind of taken aback when he sees Paula, and they have a brief exchange. And as we find out later, it's because he thinks that uh, he was, as a young boy, he was a big fan of Miss Alquist, who was an opera, a famous opera singer. And so he feels like he had seen a ghost. It's an interesting twist on the version that we had in the previous version uh, of the of the film. And in that particular case, it was a detective who had been trying to find this guy, and he was investigating the case that unfortunately went cold. And now he sees Paul, and he feels like, you know, this is the guy who I had pegged for the crime. And so it's, it's an interesting... Uh, shift in the character. And I think it actually works really nicely here. I think going, especially the way that the glove ties in, I thought that was a really nice touch to have toward the end. I, I think all in all, it's a great kind of connection between the two, making him a younger guy, a possible kind of romance with uh, Gregory getting a little uh, jealous. All of it worked really well in context of the story. Plus, I mean, Joseph Cotton, I mean, come on. You can't go wrong with the guy. He's just so stinking enjoyable to watch. Well, and as much as I love Charles Boyer and uh, in this film in particular, he is the bad guy. When he and Joseph Cotton are standing nose to nose, I just, oh, that Joseph Cotton is a strong and handsome lad. He is just the guy. He's good. Like, if I were Charles Boyer, I would just turn around and walk away. It's just not worth it. He's just too much, Joseph Cotton. He's too much. He's too good. He's too handsome. Ugh, he's like a shiny penny. <laughs> well, and what's funny is, I mean, we were talking about uh, age differences last week with uh, Gary Cooper and Ingrid Bergman. Yes. And, I mean, here we have Charles Boyer, who also was born in 1899, same year as Humphrey Bogart. So he, again, has that 17-year age gap. Uh, he's uh, 17 years uh, Ingrid's uh, senior. And Joseph Cotton, I mean, he's he's not uh, you know that far off either. He's 1905, so he's uh, 10 years older than her. Uh, she she uh, This is probably a Hollywood thing. They're probably getting cast quite a bit yeah. um, younger women with older men for quite a long time. But I think that Charles Boyer works really well. I buy him. Gary oh, yeah. Cooper is the one right now that I have the biggest struggle with as yeah. far as her, <laughs> her love interest. Yes. So in terms of the draft, the love interest draft with Ingrid Bergman. Yes. We're picking him last. I Charles Boyer is wonderful. He is. It, it's such a. It's such a beautiful thing to have them. They're so like beautifully European, right? (laughs) Not 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 British. And that is a standout in an otherwise sort of naturally uh, British legacy of this film. Right. That that, uh, you know, coming off of the 1940 version, you know, him being French, he is just he's wonderful. And uh, I can't remember. Have we talked about anything else that he's done? Boyer, I, you know, I know we've we've seen him. But I can't. I don't think anything else has hit the list. I don't think so. I feel like we've uh, kind of uh, missed uh, a lot of his projects. He yeah. certainly is an actor who has been very busy from, I mean, 1920 all the way up through uh, the mid uh, 70s. So yeah, yeah, very, very busy. But he also that those French genes they actually uh, make him age like on a leap year basis. I think so <laughs> for every every one year of the, the 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 French, everyone else ages four. Right. That's how it works. Right. There's math yes. involved in this. And I get very confused <laughs> also because I'm not French and I'm so old. <laughs> You're just so much older. Than him. <laughs> I'm 160 right. years old. <laughs> uh, OK, what's, 
so so uh, just as far as getting this made with with uh, Boyer, it's interesting because he actually wanted to have top billing for the film, which it sounds like Ingrid Bergman really didn't care. But David O. Selznick was loaning her out along with Joseph Cotton to be in this film and was pushing for Ingrid to have top billing. I mean, it is kind of her story after all, but he felt, you know, it's his story. And and uh, this was this big issue. And so uh, QCOR actually suggested doing what they call sandwich billing, and this was a practice of listing the, the well-known female star sandwiched between the two popular male stars. And uh, this was kind of a popular way of promoting back in the 40s. And, uh, you know, QCOR told Selznick, this is what we did when, when, when I did Philadelphia Story. Uh, we put Katherine Hepburn right between Cary Grant and James Stewart. It, and, you know, it worked. And so Selznick was like, oh, okay, you know, it will, it, Boyer can have top billing. She'll be the kind of the... The female lead, I guess, is kind of how they were making it emphasis by doing the sandwich billing. And it's just such a silly thing. But, uh, you know, it's it's what they needed to do in order to get the movie made. And I think the cast works perfectly. So I'm glad that it worked with this cast. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Andy, I feel like we should do just we absolutely have to talk about cinematography. I know we need to talk about that, but I feel like we need to just share a few words on George Cukor before we do, because it just occurred to me once again, I made a little bit of a big deal that this was the unintentional George Cukor series, because now we've done the Philadelphia story and Gaslight and what we've done something else of his, right? Haven't yeah, we, done we did. Something? We did the women. Oh, we did the women. That's right. <laughs> I was allowed to forget that. Uh, so we, and, and he was, we've talked about him a lot with, uh, regard to, uh, Gone with the well, Wind and, uh, Wizard of Oz and, and like he has a thing. And we just talked about what price Hollywood in our Star is Born series. Yes, that's right. That's right. So I feel like we have to just say a little bit about George Cukor in the context of this film. What does he bring to this as a director? George Cukor is a director who is often noted for knowing how to direct, uh, his, his, uh, the women. I I think that that's kind of, you know, something that, you know, he's a great director of actors. He's a great director of women. And what he does with Ingrid Bergman here, I mean, she goes from this, you know, we talked about how Ingrid Bergman, she knows how to look lovely, like where she's looking at somebody like she loves them. At the beginning of this film, you have those moments and you sense this love that she has with Boyer. And over the course of the film, you watch her go crazy. And I just think that that Cukor knows how to work with her and get a performance that is just really haunting and broken from her from beginning to end. I mean, just the way that she uh, transforms over the course of this film. I mean, it's just, it's really powerful. And I think that is Cukor's strength. But what I, what really struck me on watching it this time, and this, I think, will kind of lead into our conversation with um, uh, with cinematography mm-hmm. is just how good I felt Cukor did at really connecting his uh, the the vibe of this film with kind of that noir element and just the deep shadows and kind of the angles and just the way that they filled the frame. Really strong filmmaking that. I I, don't, I was just really impressed seeing it coming from Cukor, who I don't feel like we've seen uh, the films that we have talked about on the show. I don't feel like we have seen this look from him. Yeah, it, it's it's a funny bit of crime drama, this sort of psychological crime that lands in noir, right? This isn't the kind of, uh, you know, uh, hard-boiled noir thriller uh it it is but it is very much uh stylistically it it is smack in the middle thanks to the use of these of, of the way they move the camera and the way they paint with with darkness those deep deep pools of black for me anytime we're introduced to a new uh set piece and that is going to be the home of their horror whether it's their main entrance to the house before they actually turn on the gas lights for the first time or up in the attic as we're introduced to um just the the you know boxes and and structures that end up hiding so many of the secrets of the of the film up there um i am uh deeply moved by the way we are invited in to the haunting of of the space and of these characters and i think it it just works so well uh and this is credit to joseph rutenberg um uh, behind the camera 
Yeah, and and I mean, paired with that, just because you were talking about just kind of the, w- the way that they filled the frame, the production design department did an amazing job of just filling this house where there was stuff everywhere. I mean, just like knickknacks all over the place in these rooms that just made it feel claustrophobic. Like, especially as the lights are changing and she's all alone, I just feel like there's so much stuff in here that she's just squeezed in this place. Just, it is beautiful, though, the way that they put that together. Well, it felt very much like the house of this you know the this eccentric opera singer and and a lifetime of treasures that she collected you know they make a big deal at at one point of saying oh this cabinet is where her treasures were and we needed to right. see that cabinet because there was one glove and the the pair of uh, had been separated long ago and that becomes a, an important story element as we've talked about but really it's the entire house that is home to all of these treasures and knickknacks and you really feel that the production design is just wonderful the, but back to the cinematography i just i mean the, i love the way that they played with shadows and I love the way the Q-Core paired with uh, um, Rudenberg. They took opportunities to not necessarily feel like they needed to cut scenes really quickly, but they allowed scenes to play out. And there was a beautiful shot when they are standing on the landing outside of her room and he is, uh, and Gregory is going to kind of lock her in the room, basically, is what's happening. And she's just like, she's lost and she's feeling broken. And she's like, please, no, let's just, st-. I can't remember what the conversation is. But he basically, um, we see the two of them on the landing. And then we see her go through the doorway. And we see her shadow projecting out onto the kind of the hallway outside. And then we see him go in and we see his shadow as the two of them are having kind of the continuation of their conversation. And then they both continue into the room and disappear and then he comes out and uh and we just see the one shadow and then him as he kind of leaves and closes her door the way that they constructed that shot in one long take was just it was beautiful and it allowed for the story to take place in a space that emphasized everything going on it was just beautiful construction uh, it it really is, and you know that it, the the fact that they really just landed on that treatment of of you know how we live in this world of lights and darks from the very opening frame to the closing, uh, you know the way they play with the the flame. For me, that comes when they first light the flame as they enter the house, and she's scared, and she says, "I can't do that, I can't do that." Uh, but it, it seems like they I have not noticed some of the tricks that apparently they used elsewhere. Yeah. I- And I need to go back and look at this, too. But apparently during the opening and closing credits, which is a shot of a gas uh, like a lantern in the house, kind of this gaslight burning. Apparently, if you look at the shadow as it plays on the wallpaper, you can see a man strangling a woman, which I think is really interesting. That's Hitchcock. Right. Ugh. Uh, well, this is a it, it's just a lovely film. I'm so glad we got on this. And especially it's it's sort of palate cleansing after uh, a so-so experience last week for whom the bell tolls. Yeah. Yeah. How did it do at award season? It, you know, for its time, it was really popular at award season. Five wins, seven other nominations over at the Academy Awards. It got seven nominations there alone. Um, Best actress, uh, Ingrid Bergman. She won. She walked away with the award for this film. A nice little note on that. Um, she was up against uh, another actress that we've talked about uh, that we really, really like in a film we really, really love. And it was... Um, uh, I'm blanking here. Hold on. I'm looking. Shush, shush, shush. <laughs> oh, yeah. You think I'd have all this ready? Um, another actress that she was nominated against, Barbara Stanwyck, somebody that we love mm. who was nominated for her performance in Double Indemnity. She was rumored to be the favorite uh, to win the award, and then Bergman won. But Stanwyck was very gracious in the defeat. In her defeat, she said she was a member of the Ingrid Bergman fan club, and she said she didn't feel at all bad about the award because, as she said, my favorite actress won it and has earned it by all of her performances. So mm. I just think that's lovely. Very kind. Absolutely. Um, Continuing on, we have uh, the best art direction, interior decoration, black and white, 
won for uh, the Oscar for that. Best Picture lost to Going My Way. Likewise, Charles Boyer lost to Bing Crosby for Going My Way. And the Best Writing Screenplay, uh, we didn't really mention them, but the screenplay was John L. Balderston, Walter Reich, and John Van Druten. They were nominated for Best uh, Screenplay, and they lost also to Going My Way. Uh, Best Supporting Actress, Angela Lansbury. Her first performance in a film uh, that she wasn't even uh, really ready for. She was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, but lost to Ethel Barrymore in None But the Lonely Heart. And Best Cinematography, Black and White, lost to Laura. And boy, I tell you, talk about two really gorgeous films. I, I have a hard time arguing that loss, even if I do... Uh, I kind of selfishly would just love to see this one win, but yeah, I'm totally too. okay with Laura taking that. Um, over at the Golden Globes, uh, Ingrid Bergman won Best Actress there. She also won at the National Board of Review. At Cannes, it was uh, nominated for the grand prize of the festival for the best film, but did did not win there. And last but not least, at the New York Film Critics Circle Awards, um, this was the one where uh, Ingrid Bergman was nominated, but did not win. She, in fact, lost to Tallulah Bankhead in Lifeboat of all things, which really surprised me. I mean, I really like Lifeboat. I think Hitchcock did a great job with that. But the other nominee, Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity, and Ingrid Bergman, I would argue both did better performances than Tallulah Bankhead in Lifeboat. I can't comment. I haven't seen Lifeboat. What's that oh, about? You should watch it. It's a really fascinating movie. I, I don't think it's one of Hitchcock's greats, but it certainly is a strong uh, entry for him. All right, it's on the list. There you go. How'd it do at the box office? Well, in order to really bury Dickinson's film, MGM gave Cucor just over $2 million, which is about $28.2 million in today's dollars. The movie was released May 4th, 1944, opposite an interesting film, Follow the Boys, also known as Three Cheers for the Boys, which is an all-star cast morale booster designed to entertain the troops abroad and the civilians at home. One of those kind of all-star cast sorts of movies. Um, this was a huge success here in the United States, earning back $4.6 million or $63 million in today's dollars. That gives Cucor's film an adjusted profit per finish minute of just under $3.2 million. All in all, a notch for his belt, and a great success for him, the cast, and MGM. Luckily for all of us, however, it didn't, in fact, bury Dickinson's film like they had hoped. It's a fantastic gift that they found the old one and that we have the new one. It is, uh, it's it's just great anxiety-ridden film. And I, I'm, I'm nervous, Andy, I'm nervous about what's going to happen when we rank it. I hope you're not. I love this movie. And I'm really excited to rank it. And if there's any reason for you to be nervous, I'm going to blame it on you. Head <laughs> <laughs> over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. And you can see all the movies that we've attempted to somehow congenially uh, rank together as a team. Uh, some for good, some for ill. Uh, if you swipe over in your show notes and you tap the word flick chart, that should take you directly to this movie uh, where you can add it to your own list and see how it stands up to ours. First up, Gaslight or Rocky 3? Gaslight. 100%. Yep, Gaslight. Gaslight or Fargo? Mm-hmm. Oh. Mm-hmm. See? Not so easy, is it? It's not so easy. Fargo. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, do you know what? I feel like, on principle, I have to... I have to take you to the mat on this one. Okay. All right. One, one two, two, three. three paper. Rock. Oh, so that worked out all right. I could have gone with Pretty Picture and still won. <laughs> Gaslight or A Star is Born 2018. Oh, for crying out loud, Andy. I know. Um, this is this is where it gets, it's it's already been tough for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to, yes, I'm going to go A Star is Born 2018. And I, my expectation is that you will, on principle, please take me to the mat, and then I don't have to feel bad about it. I will take you to the mat. Good. Thank you. All right. One, Here we go. One, one two, two, three. three scissors. scissors. Paper. Scissors. Ah, oh, you went the other way. <laughs> All right, Gaslight took it. Gaslight or All the President's Men? 
for crying out loud. Why can't we get some easy ones? <laughs> uh, I am all the president's men. I am all the president's men. All right. Gaslight or Snowpiercer. I'm going to say Gaslight. Yeah, Gaslight, please. Gaslight or Brazil. You know which way I'm going. I actually will go with you to, to Brazil. Brazil. Off we go. Gaslight or Paranorman. Haven't seen that pop up in ages. Gaslight. Gaslight. Gaslight or Old Boy. I am going with Gaslight. Uh, I will go with Gaslight as well. Gaslight or Casino Royale. Which one? Oh, I suppose we've only done the one. The only one we've <laughs> talked about. Uh, I will go with, um, uh, I think, Gaslight. Oh, although, although I think Charles Boyer might have been in the original. He was in the original, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I am, you're, you're going with Gaslight? Yeah. I, I'm going with Casino Royale. Really? Yeah. Oh, no, that's just you being braver than I am. I'm going to go with that, too. Casino Royale. Absolutely. <laughs> I was just trying. I was trying, I was like, I, I don't know. I was I was flexing. You're trying to prove your cred. Yeah. Oh, totally. Gaslight. Yeah. No, Gaslight. Uh, yeah, it's a great film, uh, but I still uh, Casino Royale. I mean, it's Casino Royale. Yeah. Well, that puts Gaslight at 33 on our chart. Wow. 33. That's quite that a landing. Shot up there. 92% up on our chart. So I'd say that little movie did pretty well for itself. And where's, uh, how much higher did um, uh, Casablanca go? It's it's like up in our top uh, uh, 20, right? Yeah. Casablanca I'd, landed at uh, uh, 14. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. This performed well. How'd it do on your personal chart? It's really high up there for mine, too. This film is at spot 121 out of 4,134 on my chart, which is, uh, I mean, it's, you know, like a, a 90, I can't remember, 97% or something like that. Yeah. I, it, weirdly for me, it ended up at 229 out of 1,086, which is uh, actually too low. It's a 79%. That feels too low for me, but, you know, it, it is what it is. Um, if I go by the algorithm, it should be a four-star elsewhere. It's not a four-star movie for me. It's a five-star movie for me with a heart uh, on letterbox.com slash the next reel. How about you? Totally. This is uh, this is an example of I just think uh, classic Hollywood film storytelling. I think the 1940 version is almost as good as this one. I think both of them deserve to be watched uh, certainly. Uh, and this film, I mean, it's it's a classic. And this is, I think, one of the big reasons why we're doing an Ingrid Bergman series because of what she delivers in a film like this. Yeah, and and the fact that this movie is such a it, it's like a primer for the kind of psychological damage that is going on both in in relationships and why it has taken hold in sort of the the world of relationship trauma but and modern media landscape like i feel like in order to to be better about using the term we have to know where the term comes from and it's nice to to go back to source and see kind of why this psychological suspense drama has and and thriller has actually you know got its hooks so deeply into into us that we're using the term today uh i think it's just it, it's a great watch absolutely worthy watch now where do we go from here we are going to be uh believe it or not pete we have not talked hitchcock on this show at all i don't know how he has eluded us all this time <laughs> but he has wow. we are He's finally crafty. He is this uh, this uh, Hitchcock is a crafty feller. Uh, we are finally going to be talking some Hitchcock, though, which is great. We're going to be looking at a pair of films he did with Ingrid Bergman, starting with Spellbound, and uh, it's going to be exciting. I'm looking forward to both of these movies that we're going to be uh, talking about uh, that they collaborated on together. So it should be uh, it should be a good time. Looking at 1945's Spellbound, followed by 1946's Notorious. Excellent. Love it. Back to back. Hitchcock. Hitchcock Bergman. Hitchman. That's their ship name. <laughs> That's, uh, I suppose it's better than Bergcock. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
Yes, it is. Thanks, Andy. <laughs> well, everybody, if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, check out our other show, The Marvel Movie Minute. We're talking about the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. We're starting with 2008's Iron Man. You can support that show and all of our shows over on thenextreel.com slash Patreon, where you can also get access to our exclusive members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. And if you can imagine a topic like this one, it's going to bring out opinions. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. <laughs> you yes, have a hard time is. separating those who are talking about the film or talking about their own marriage. And that's what leads us to our reviews this week. Would you like to open? I sure would. LM says Wayne Baker and gaslighting, giving it a one star said, had a marriage counselor call me a gaslighter to my wife. I don't do stuff like this movie. <laughs> Who's gaslighting whom? One star for the silly pop psychology created by this silly little flick. <laughs> Somebody's in denial. <laughs> no, I had to look up this. I mean, you know who this Wayne Baker is? I looked up Wayne Baker and all I saw was the, uh, and I, I know there's a lot of Wayne Bakers. I was looking at the American author and sociologist on the senior faculty of the University of Michigan. That's what I found, but I can't find anything that relates to Wayne Baker and gaslighting. I don't know what this is all about. I don't get the reference if this is related to him. He seems like an academic that I've never heard of. So, you know. There you go. Maybe he yeah, uses right. the word gaslight a lot. I don't know. But mine uh, is actually somebody else who really RPD, who says that they're, they're not really fond of this movie. They call it an incredibly stupid film. And it's all caps, except for the I in incredibly like iPhone. It's incredibly stupid <laughs> film. And that's the first thing that makes me chuckle a little bit. This film really made me angry and pissed off I bothered watching it. The characters were cardboard, and I can't believe Ingrid Bergman starred in this junk. The main character totally lost it, believing all what her husband was saying about her. She was totally unthinking in the whole episode until it was revealed that her husband was a con. Okay, so I thought, well, maybe we, you know, we disagree on the movie until I realized that, that, uh, you know, thanks to a very helpful respondent in the comment section on the comments, Caleb D writes in and says, the cardboard people are just on the package. You're supposed to watch the movie, not the box. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that was it. <laughs> oh, so good. Thank you, so Caleb. Good. Oh, Amazon sometimes, these are deep waters. Deep waters <laughs> in the Amazon ocean. <laughs> thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>